Chapter 7 A very few days more, and Captain Wentworth was known to be at Kellynch, and Mr. Musgrove had called on him, and come back warm in his praise, and he was engaged with the Crofts to dine at Uppercross by the end of another week. It had been a great disappointment to Mr. Musgrove to find that no earlier day could be fixed, so impatient was he to show his gratitude, by seeing Captain Wentworth under his own roof, and welcoming him to all that was strongest and best in his cellars. But a week must pass, only a week in Anne's reckoning, and then, she supposed, they must meet, and soon she began to wish that she could feel secure even for a week. Captain Wentworth made a very early return to Mr. Musgrove's civility, and she was all but calling there in the same half hour. She and Mary were actually setting forth for the great house, where, as she afterwards learned, they must inevitably have found him, when they were stopped by the eldest boys being at that moment brought home in consequence of a bad fall. The child's situation put the visit entirely aside, but she could not hear of her escape with indifference, even in the midst of the serious anxiety which they afterwards felt on his account. His collarbone was found to be dislocated, and such injury received in the back as aroused the most alarming ideas. It was an afternoon of distress, and Anne had everything to do at once, the apothecary to send for, the father to have persuaded and informed, the mother to support and keep from hysterics, the servants to control, the youngest child to banish, and the poor suffering one to attend and soothe, besides sending, as soon as she recollected it, proper notice to the other house, which brought her an ascension rather of frightened, inquiring companions than of very useful assistance. Her brother's return was the first comfort. He could take best care of his wife, and the second blessing was the arrival of the apothecary. Till he came and had examined the, examined the child, their apprehensions were the worse for being vague. They suspected great injury, but knew not where. But now the collarbone was soon replaced, and though Mr. Robinson felt and felt and rubbed and looked grave and spoke low words both to the father and the aunt, still they were all to hope the best, and to be able to part and eat their dinner in tolerable ease of mind. And then it was just before they parted that the two young aunts were able so far to digress from the nephew's state as to give the information of Captain Wentworth's visit staying five minutes behind their father and mother to endeavor to express how perfectly delighted they were with him, how much handsomer, how infinitely more agreeable they thought him than any individual among their male acquaintance, who had been at all a favorite, bef uh, who had been at all a favorite before, how glad they had been to hear papa invite him to stay dinner, how sorry when he said it was quite out of his power, and how glad again when he had promised to reply to papa and mamma's farther pressing invitation to come and dine with them on the morrow, actually on the morrow, and he had promised in so pleasant a manner, as if he felt all the motive of their attention just as he ought. And, in short, he had looked and said very, everything with such exquisite grace that they could assure them all their heads were both turned by him. And off they ran, quite as full of glee as of love, and apparently more full of Captain Wentworth than of little Charles." The same story and the same raptures were repeated when the two girls came with their father through the gloom of the evening to make inquiries, and Mr. Musgrove, no longer under the first uneasiness about his heir, could add his confirmation and praise, hope there would be now no occasion for putting Captain Wentworth off, and only be sorry to think that the cottage party probably would not like to leave the little boy to give him the meeting. Oh, oh no, as far 
As to leaving the little boy, both father and mother were in too much and uh, much too strong and recent alarm to bear the thought, and Anne, in the joy of the escape, could not help adding her warm protestations to theirs. Charles Musgrove, indeed, afterwards showed more of inclination. The child was going on so well, and he wished so much to be introduced to Captain Wentworth that perhaps he might join them in the evening. He would not dine from home, but he might walk in for half an hour. But in this he was eagerly opposed by his wife with, Oh no, indeed, Charles, I cannot bear to have you go away. Only think if anything should happen. The child had a good night and was going on well the next day. It must be a work of time to ascertain that no injury had been done to the spine, but Mr. Robinson found nothing to increase alarm, and Charles Musgrove began consequently to feel no nece necessity for longer confinement. The child was to be kept in bed and amused as quietly as possible, but what was there for a father to do? This was quite a female case, and it would be highly absurd in him, who could be of no use at home, to shut himself up. His father very much wished him to meet Captain Wentworth, and there being no sufficient reason against it, he ought to go, and it ended in his making a bold public declaration, when he came in from shooting, of his meaning to dress directly and dine at the other house. "'Nothing can be going on better than the child,' said he, "'so I took my father just now, told my father just now that I would come, "'and he thought me quite right. "'Your sister being with you, my love, I have no scruple at all. "'You would not like to leave him yourself, but you see I can be of no use. "'Anne will send for me if anything is the matter. "'Husbands and wives generally understand when opposition will be in vain.' Mary knew, from Charles's manner of speaking, that he was quite determined on going, and that it would be of no use to tease him. She said nothing, therefore, till he was out of the room, but as soon as there was only Anne to hear, "'So, you and I are to be left to shift for ourselves with this poor sick child, and not a creature coming near us all the evening. I knew how it would be. This is always my luck. If there is anything disagreeable going on, men are always sure to get out of it, and Charles is as bad as any of them. Very unfeeling. I must say it is very unfeeling of him to be running away from this poor little boy. Talks of him being going on so well. How does he know what he is going, uh, that he is going on so well, or that there may not be a sudden change half an hour hence? I did not think Charles would have, such, have been so unfeeling. So here he is to go away and enjoy himself, and here I am, the poor mother. I am not allowed to be... To uh, I am not to be allowed to stir, and yet I am sure I am more unfit than anybody else to be about the child. My being the mother is the very reason why my feelings should not be tried. I am not at all equal to it. You must. You saw how hysterical I was yesterday. But that was only the effect of the suddenness of your alarm, of the shock. You will not be hysterical again. I dare say we shall have nothing to distress us. I perfectly understand Mr. Robinson's directions, and have no fears. And indeed, Mary, I cannot wonder at your husband. Nursing does not belong to a man. It, it is not his province. A sick child is always the mother's property. Her own feelings generally make it so. I hope I am as fond of my child as any mother, but I do not know that I am of any more use in the sick room than Charles, for I cannot be always scolding and teasing a poor child when it is ill. And you saw this morning that if I told him to keep quiet, he was sure to begin kicking about. I have not nerves for this sort of thing. 
but could you be comfortable yourself to be spending the whole evening away for, from the poor boy? Yes, you see his papa can, and why should not I? Jemima is so careful, and she could send us word every hour how he was. I really think Charles might as well have told his father we would all come. I am not more alarmed about little Charles now than he is. I was dreadfully alarmed yesterday, but the case is very different today. Well, if you do not think it is too late to give notice for yourself, suppose you were to go, as well as your husband. Leave little Charles to my care. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove cannot think it wrong while I remain with him. Are you serious? cried Mary, her eyes brightening. Dear me, that's a very good thought, very good indeed. To be sure, I may just as well go as not, for I am of no use at home, am I? And it only harasses me. You, who have not a mother's feelings, are a great deal the properest person. You can make little Charles do anything. He always minds you at a word. It would be a great deal better than leaving him only with Jemima. Oh, I will certainly go. I am sure I ought if I can. Quite as much as Charles, for they want me excessively to be acquainted with Captain Wentworth, and I know you do not mind being left alone. An excellent thought of yours indeed, Anne. I will go and tell Charles and get ready directly. You can send for us, you know, at a moment's notice, if anything is the matter. But I dare say there will be nothing to alarm you. I should not go, you may be sure, if I did not feel quite at ease about my dear child. The next moment she was tapping at her husband's dressing room door, and as Anne followed her upstairs, she was in time for the whole conversation, which began with Mary saying in a tone of great exultation, I mean to go with you, Charles, for I am of no more use at home than you are. If I were to shut myself up forever with a child, I should not be able to persuade him to do anything he did not like. Anne will stay. Anne undertakes to stay at home and take care of him. It is Anne's own proposal, so I shall go with you, which will be a great deal better, for I have not dined at the other house since Tuesday. This is very kind of Anne, was her husband's answer, and I shall be very glad to have you go, but it seems rather hard that she should be left at home by herself to nurse our sick child. Anne was now at hand to take up her own cause, and the sincerity of her manner being soon sufficient to convince him, where conviction was at least very agreeable, he had no further scruples as to her being left to dine alone, though he was still, though he still wanted her to join them in the evening, when the child might be at rest for the night, and kindly urged her to let him come and fetch her, but she was quite unpersuadable and this being the case, she had ere long the pleasure of seeing them off together in high spirits. They were gone, she hoped, to be happy, however oddly constructed such happiness might seem. As for herself, she was left with as many sensations of comfort as were, perhaps, ever likely to be hers. She knew herself to be of the first utility to the child, and what was it to her if Frederick Wentworth were only half a mile distant, making himself agreeable to others? She would have liked to know how he felt at such as to a meeting, perhaps indifferent if indifference could exist under such circumstances. He must be either indifferent or unwilling. Had he wished ever to see her again, he need not have waited till this time. He would have done what she could not, but believe that in his um, place she should have done long ago when events had been early giving him the independence which alone had been wanting. Her brother and sister came back delighted with their new acquaintance and their visit in general. There had been music, singing, talking, laughing, all that was most agreeable. 
charming manners in Captain Wentworth, no shyness or reserve. They seemed all to know each other perfectly, and he was coming the very next morning to shoot with Charles. He was to come to breakfast, but not at the cottage, that they had been that had been proposed at first, but then he had been pressed to come to the great house instead, and he seemed afraid of being in Mrs. Charles Musgrove's way on account of the child, and therefore, somehow, they hardly knew how, it ended in Charles being to meet him to breakfast at his father's. Anne understood it. He wished to avoid seeing her. He had inquired after her, she found, slightly, as might suit a former slight acquaintance, see, seeming to acknowledge such as she had as she had acknowledged, actuated, perhaps by the same view of escaping introduction when they were to meet. The morning hours of the cottage were always later than those of the other house, and on the morrow the difference was so great that Mary and Anne were not more than beginning breakfast when Charles came in to say that they were just setting off, that he was come for his dogs, that his sisters were following with Captain Wentworth, his sisters meaning to visit Mary and the child, and Captain Wentworth proposing also to, also to wait on her for a few minutes, if not inconvenient. And though Charles had answered for the child's being in no such state as could make it inconvenient, Captain Wentworth would not be satisfied without his running on to give notice. Mary, very much gratified by this attention, was delighted to receive him. While a thousand feelings rushed on Anne, of which this was the most consoling, that it would be soon over. And it was soon over. In two minutes after Charles's preparation, the others appeared. They were in the drawing room. Her eyes half met Captain Wentworth's. A bow, a curtsy passed. She heard his voice. He talked to Mary, said all that was right, said something to the Miss Musgroves, enough to mark an easy footing. The room seemed full, full of persons and voices, but a few minutes ended it. Charles showed himself at the window, all was ready, the visitor had bowed and was gone, the Miss Musgroves were gone too, suddenly resolving to walk to the end of the village with the sportsmen. The room was cleared, and Anne might finish her breakfast as she could. It is over, it is over, she repeated to herself again and again in nervous gratitude. The worst is over. Mary talked, but she could not attend. She had seen him, they had met, they had been once more in the same room. Soon, however, she began to reason with herself, and tried to be feeling less. Eight years, almost eight years, had passed since all had been given up. How absurd to be resuming the agitation with which such an interval had vanished into distance and indistinctness. What might not eight years do? Events of every description, changes, alienations, removals, all... All must be comprised in it, and oblivion of the past. How natural, how certain, too. It included nearly a third part of her whole life. Alas, with all her reasoning, she found that to retentive feelings eight years may be little more than nothing. Now, how were his sentiments to be read? Was this like wishing to avoid her? And the next moment she was hating herself for the folly which asked the question. On one other question, which perhaps her utmost wisdom might not have prevented, she was soon spared all suspense, for after the Miss Musgroves had returned and finished their visit at the cottage, she had the spontaneous information for Mary. "'Captain Wentworth is not very gallant by you, Anne, though he was so attentive to me. Henrietta asked him what he thought of you when they went away, and he said, "'You were so altered he should not have known you again.' 
Mary had no feelings to make her respect her sisters in a common way, but she was perfectly unsuspicious of inflicting any peculiar wound. Altered beyond his knowledge, Anne fully submitted in silent, deep mortification. Doubtless it was so, and she could take no revenge, for he was not altered, or not for the worse. She had already acknowledged it to herself, and she could not think differently, let him think of her as he would. No, the years which had destroyed her youth and bloom had only given him a more glowing, manly, open look, in no respect lessening his personal advantages. She had seen the same Frederick Wentworth. So altered that she that he should not have known her again. These were words which could not but dwell with her. Yet she soon began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency. They allayed agitation. They composed, and consequently, must make her happy. Frederick Wentworth had used such words, or something like them, but without an idea that they would be carried around to her. He had thought her wretchedly altered, and in the first moment of appeal had spoken as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him, and worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity. He had been most warmly attached to her, and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal. But a but, except from some natural sensation of curiosity, he had no desire of meeting her again. Her power with him was gone forever. It was now his object to marry. He was rich, and being turned on shore, fully intended to settle as soon as he could be properly tempted. Actually looking round, ready to fall in love with all the speed which a clear head and quick taste could allow. He had a heart for either of, this mus of the Miss Musgroves if they could catch it, a heart, in short, for any pleasing young woman who came in his way except Anne Elliot. This was his own secret exception, when he said to his sister, in answer to her suppositions, Yes, here I am, Sophia, quite ready to make a foolish match. Anybody between thir fifteen and thirty may have me for asking. A little beauty, and a few smiles, and a few compliments to the navy, and I am a lost man." Should not this be enough for a sailor who has had no society among women to make him nice? He said it, she knew, to be contradicted. His bright, proud eye spoke the happy conviction that he was nice, and Anne Elliot was not out of his thoughts when he more seriously described the woman he should wish to meet with. A strong mind, with sweetness of, temp of manner, made the first and the last of the description. That is the woman I want said he. Something a little inferior I shall, of course, put up with, but it must not be much. If I am a fool, I shall be a fool indeed, for I have thought on the subject more than most men. Oh, I just want them to love each other. Chapter 8 From this time, Captain Wentworth and Anne Elliot were repeatedly in the same circle. They were soon dining in company together at Mr. Musgrove's, for the little boy's state could no longer supply his aunt with the pretense for absenting herself, and this was but the beginning of other dinings and other meetings. Whether former feelings were to be renewed must be brought to the proof. Former times must undoubtedly be brought to the recollection of each. They could not but be reverted to. The year of their recollection 
of their engagement could not but be named by him in the little narratives or descriptions which conversation called forth. His profession qualified him, his disposition led him to talk, and that was in the year six. That happened before I went to sea in the year six, occurred in the course of the first evening they spent together. And though his voice did not falter, and though he had no reason to suppose his eye, she had no reason to suppose his eye wandering toward her while he spoke, Anne felt the utter impossibility from her knowledge of his mind that he could be unvisited by remembrance any more than herself. There must be the same immediate association of thought, though she was very far from convincing it to be of equal pain. They had no conversation together, no intercourse but what the commonest civility required. Once so much to each other, now nothing. There had been a time when of all the large party now filling the drawing room at Uppercross, they would have been found it most difficult to cease to speak to one another, with the exception, perhaps, of Admiral and Mrs. Croft, who seemed particularly attached and happy, and could allow no other exceptions even among the married couples. There could have been no two hearts so open, no tastes so similar, no feelings so in unison, no countenances so beloved. Now they were as strangers, nay, worse than strangers, for they could never become acquainted. It was a perpetual estrangement. When he talked, she heard the same voice and discerned the same mind. There was a very general ignorance of all naval matters throughout the party, and he was very much questioned, and especially by the two Miss Musgroves, who seemed hardly to have any eyes but for him, as to the manner of living on board, daily regulations, food, hours, etc., and their surprise at his accounts, at learning the degree of accommodation and arrangement which was practicable, drew from him some pleasant ridicule, which reminded Anne of the very early of the early days when she too had been ignorant, and she too had been accused of supposing sailors to be living on board without anything to eat, or any cook to dress if it were there, or any servant to wait, or any knife or fork to use. From thus listening and thinking, she was roused by a whisper of Mrs. Musgrove's, who, overcome by fond regrets, could not help saying, "'Ah, Miss Anne, if it had pleased heaven to spare my poor son, I dare say he would have been just such another by this time.' Anne suppressed a smile, and listened kindly, while Mrs. Musgrove relieved her heart a little more, and for a few minutes, therefore, could not keep pace with the conversation of the others.' When she could let her attention take its natural course again, she found the Miss Musgroves just fetching the navy list, their own navy list, the first that had ever been at Uppercross, and sitting down together to pore over it, with the professed view of finding out the ships that Captain Wentworth had commanded. Your first was the Asp, I remember. We will look for the Asp. You will not find her there, quite worn out and broken up. I was the last man who commanded her hardly fit for service then, reported fit for service, home service for a year or two, and so I was sent off to the West Indies. The girls looked all amazement. The Admiralty, he continued, entertained themselves now and then with sending a few hundred men to sea in a ship not fit to be employed, but they had a great many to provide for, and only the thousands they that may just as well go to the bottom as not. It is impossible for them to distinguish the very set who may be least missed. "'Foo! Foo!' cried the admiral. Admiral, "'What stuff these young fellows talk! "'Never was a better sloop than the Asp in her day. 
For an old boat sloop, you shouldn't would not see her equal. Lucky fellow to get her. You know there must be twenty better men than himself applying for her at the t at the time. Lucky fellows to get anything so soon with no more interest than his. I felt my luck, Admiral. I assure you," replied Captain Wentworth seriously. "I was as well satisfied with my appointment as you can desire. It was a great object with me at that time to be at sea." A very great object. I wanted to be doing something. To be sure you did. What should a young fellow like you do ashore for half a year together, if a man has not a wife who soon wants to be afloat again? But, Captain Wentworth, cried Louisa, how vexed you must have been when you came to the Asp to see what an old thing they had given you. I knew pretty well what she was before that day, he said, smiling. I had no more discoveries to make than you would have as the fashion as to the fashion and strength of any old police which you have seen lent about half your acquaintance ever since you could remember and which at last on some very wet day is lent to yourself ah she was a dear old asp to me she did all that i wanted i knew she would i knew that she should either go to the bottom together that we should either go to the bottom together or that she would be the making of me and I never had two days of foul weather all the time I was at sea in her. And after taking privateers enough to be very entertaining, I had the good luck, in my passage home the next autumn, to fall in with the very French frigate I wanted. I brought her into Plymouth, and here another instance of luck. We had not been six hours in the sound when a gale came on, which lasted four days and nights, and which would have done for poor old Asp in half the time, our touch with the great nation not having much improved our condition. Four and twenty hours later, and I should only have been a gallant Captain Whitworth in a small paragraph on one corner of the newspapers, and being lost in only a sloop, nobody would have thought about me. Anne's shudderings were to herself alone, but the Miss Musgroves could be as open as they were sincere in their exclamations of pity and horror. And so then I suppose, said Mrs. Musgrove in a low voice, as if thinking aloud, so then he went to the Laconia, and there he met with our poor boy. Charles, my dear, beckoning him to her, do ask Captain Wentworth where it was he first met with your poor brother. I always forget. It was at Gibraltar, mother, I know. Dick had, always, had been left ill at Gibraltar with the recommendation from his former captain to Captain Wentworth. Oh, but Charles, tell Captain Wentworth he need not be afraid of mentioning poor Dick before me, for it would be a... Rather a pleasure to hear him talked of by such a good friend. Charles, being somewhat more mindful of the probabilities of the case, only nodded in reply and walked away. The girls were now hunting for the Laconia, and Captain Wentworth could not deny himself the pleasure of taking the precious volume into his own hands to save them the trouble, and once more read aloud the little statement of her name and rate and present non-commissioned class, observing over it, that she too had been one of the best friends man ever had. Ah, those were pleasant days when I had the Laconia. How fast I made money in her. A friend of mine and I had such a lovely cruise together off the western islands. Poor Harville, sister, you know how much he wanted money, worse than myself. He had a wife. Excellent fellow. I shall never forget his happiness. He felt it all so much for her sake. I wished for him again the next summer when I had still th the same luck in the Mediterranean. And I am sure, sir, said Mrs. Musgrove, it was a lucky day for us when you were put captain into that ship. 
We shall never forget what you did. Her feelings made her speak low, and Captain Wentworth, hearing only in part, and probably not having Dick Musgrove at all near his thoughts, looked rather in suspense, as if waiting for more. My brother, whispered one of the girls, Mamma is thinking of poor Richard. Poor dear fellow, continued Mrs. Musgrove, he was grown so steady and such an excellent correspondent while he was under your care. Ah! It would have been a happy thing if he ever had if he never had left you. I assure you, Captain Wentworth, we were very sorry he ever left you. There was a momentary expression in Captain Wentworth's face at this speech, a certain glance of his bright eye and curl of his handsome mouth, which convinced Anne that instead of sharing in Mrs. Musgrove's kind wishes as to her son, he had probably been at some pains to get rid of him but it was too transient an indulgence of self-amusement to be detected by any who understood him less than herself. In another moment he was perfectly collected and serious, and al almost instantly afterwards coming up to the sofa on which she and Mrs. Musgrove were sitting, took a place by the ladder, and it entered into conversation with her in a low voice about her son, doing it with so much sympathy and natural grace as showed the kindest consideration for all that was real and unabsurd in the parents' feelings. They were actually on the same sofa, for Mrs. Musgrove had not had most readily made room for him. They were divided only by Mrs. Musgrove. It was no insignificant barrier, indeed. Mrs. Musgrove's, Musgrove was as a, of a comfortable, substantial size, infinitely more fitted by nature to express good cheer and good humor than tenderness and sentiment. And while the agitations of Anne's slender form and pensive face may be considered as very completely screened, Captain Wentworth should be allowed some credit for the self-command with which he attended to her large fat sighings over the destiny of a son whom alive nobody had cared for. Personal sighs and mental sorrow have certainly no necessary proportions. A large bulky figure has a good, as good a right to be in deep affliction as the most graceful set of limbs in the world. But, fair or not fair, there are unbecoming conjunctions which reason will patronize in vain, which taste cannot tolerate, which ridicule will seize. The admiral, admiral after taking two or three refreshing turns about the room with his hands behind him, being called to order by his wife, now come up to Captain Wentworth, and without any observation of what he might be interrupting, thinking only of his own thoughts, began with, If you had been a week later in Lisbon last spring, Frederick, you would have been asked to give a passage to Lady Mary Grierson and her daughters. Should I? I am glad I was not a week later, then. The Admiral abused him for his want of gallantry. He defended himself though professing he would never willingly admit any ladies on board a ship of his, excepting for a ball or a visit which a few hours might comprehend. But if I know myself, said he, this is from no want of gallantry towards them. It is rather from feeling how impossible it is, with all one's efforts and all one's sacrifices, to make the accommodations on board such as women ought to have. There can be no want of gallantry, Admiral, in rating the and the claims of women to every personal comfort high. And this is what I do. I hate to hear of women on board or to see them on board, and no ship under my command shall ever convey a family of ladies anywhere, if I can help it. This brought his sister upon him. 
Oh, Frederick, but I cannot believe it of you. All idle refinement. Women may be as comfortable on board as in the best house in England. I believe I have lived as much on board as most women, and I know nothing superior to the accommodations of a man of war. I declare I have not a comfort or an indulgence about me, even at Kellynch Hall, with the kind bow to Anne, beyond what I always had in most of the ships I have lived in, and they have been five altogether. Nothing to the purpose, replied her brother. You were living with your husband, and were the only woman on board. But you yourself brought Mrs. Harville, her sister, her cousin, and three children round from Portsmouth to Plymouth. Where was this superfine, extraordinary sort of gallantry of yours then? All merged with my friendship, Sophia. I would assist any brother officer's wife that I could, and I would bring anything of Harville's from the world's end if he wanted it. But do not imagine that I did not feel it an evil in itself. Depend upon it, they were all perfectly comfortable. I might not like them the better for that, perhaps. Such a number of women and children have no right to be comfortable on board. My dear Frederick, you are talking quite idly. Pray what would become of our poor sailors' wives, who often want to be conveyed to one port or another after our husbands, if everybody had your feelings? My feelings, you see, did not prevent my taking Mrs. Harville and her family to Plymouth. But I hate to hear you talking so, like a fine gentleman, as if women were all fine ladies instead of rational creatures. We none of us expect to be in smooth water all our days. Ah, oh, my dear, said the admiral, when he has got a wife, he will sing a different tune. When he is married, if we have the good luck to live to another war, we shall see him do as you and I and a, many, a great many others have done. We shall have him... Very thankful to anybody that will bring him his wife. Aye, that we shall. Now I have done, cried Captain Wentworth. When once married people begin to attack me with, Oh, you will think very differently when you are married. I can only say, No, I shall not. And then they say again, Yes, you will. And there is an end of it. He got up and moved away. What a great traveler you must have been, ma'am, said Mrs. Cro Musgrove to Mrs. Croft. Pretty well, ma'am, in the fifteen years of my marriage, though many women have done more. I have crossed the Atlantic four times, and have been once to the East Indies and back again, and only once besides being in different places about home, Cork and Lisbon and Gibraltar. But I never went beyond the Straits, and never was in the West Indies. We do not call Bermuda or Bahama, you know, the West Indies. Mrs. Musgrove had not a word to say in dissent. She could not accuse herself of having ever called them anything in the whole course of her life. "'And I do assure you, ma'am,' pursued Mrs. Croft, "'that nothing can exceed the accommodations of a man of war. I speak, you know, of the higher rates. When you come to a frigate, of course, you are more confined, though any reasonable woman may be perfectly happy in one of them, and I can safely say that the happiest part of my life has been spent on board a ship.' While we were together, you know, there was nothing to be feared. Thank God, I have always been blessed with excellent health, and no climate disagrees with me. A little disordered all, always the first twenty-four hours of going to sea, but never knew what sickness was afterwards. The only time that I ever really suffered in body or mind, the only time that I ever fancied myself unwell or had any ideas of danger, was the winter that I passed by myself at Deal, when the Admiral, Captain Croft then, was in the North Seas. I lived in perpetual fright at that time, 
and had all manner of imaginary complaints from not knowing what to do with myself or when I should hear from him next. But as long as we could be together, nothing ever ailed me, and I never met with the smallest inconvenience. I, to be sure, yes, indeed, oh, yes, I am quite of your opinion, Mrs. Croft, was Mrs. Musgrove's hearty answer. There is nothing so bad as a separation. I am quite of your opinion. I know what it is, for Mr. Musgrove always attends the assizes, and I am so glad when they are over and he is back safe again. The evening ended with dancing. On it, began, on it being proposed, Anne offered her services as usual, and though her eyes would sometimes fill with tears as she sat at the instrument, she was extremely glad to be employed, and desired nothing in return but to be unobserved. It was a merry, joyous party, and no one seemed in higher spirits than Captain Wentworth. She felt that he had everything to elevate him, which general attention and deference, and especially the attention of all the young women, could do. The Miss Haters, the females of the family of cousins already mentioned, were apparently admitted to the honor of being in love with him, and as for Henrietta and Louisa, they both seemed so entirely occupied by him that nothing but the continued appearance of the most perfect goodwill between themselves could have made it credible that they were not de decided rivals. If he were a little spoiled by such universal, such eager admiration, who could wonder? These were some of the thoughts which occupied Anne, while her fingers were mechanically at work, proceeding for half an hour together, equally without terror and without consciousness. Once she felt that he was looking at herself, observing her altered features, perhaps, trying to trace in them the ruins of the face which had once charmed him. And once she knew that he must have spoken of her, she was hardly aware of it till she heard the answer, but then she was sure of his having asked his partner whether Miss Elliot never danced. The answer was, oh no, never. She has quite given up dancing. She had rather play. She is never tired of playing. Once, too, he spoke to her. She had left the instrument on the dancing being over, and he had sat down to try to make out an air which he wished to give the Miss Musgroves an idea of. Unintentionally, she returned to that part of the room. He saw her and, instantly rising, said with studied politeness, I beg your pardon, madam, this is your seat. And though she immediately drew back with a decided negative, he was not to be induced to sit down again. Anne did not wish for more of such looks or speeches. His cold politeness, his ceremonious grace, were worse than anything.'